I do hope, though, that you uh, will join us, a member or just considering membership. Looking forward to talking with uh, the Pattersons. If you're new, they were uh, both Patrick and Becky were residents here for about a year and are now serving full-time in Southeast Asia. Uh, thank you for last week off. Jill and I were celebrating our 18th anniversary. I heard a little bit of shock in those woos, Jill. I feel the same way, that you continually love me. Didn't go well? Oh, thank you, Nick. Um, if you would, please turn with me to 1 John 4. We are there today. Tab did a great job last week, um, a difficult passage, the start of First John 4. I hope if you weren't here that you're able to listen to it online. Today we're going to talk uh, further about a subject that has come up multiple times thus far in the letter of 1 John. In modern American culture, when we realize that we've not been very loving people, we tend to think that the way to become more loving is to first focus on loving ourselves. So if I want to become a more loving person, the place I look is inside of myself for more love. Now that, of course, is completely antithetical to what the scriptures say. Uh, There's nothing to be found like that in the Bible. However, that is the most common way of thinking today about love. If I want to be more loving, I look inside, focus on myself, develop my self-esteem, That will make me more loving. But the scriptures tell us that the path to love is not the way inward, but the way upward. God says love first comes from within. No, God says love first comes from above. Scriptures tell us this in 1 John chapter 4. Let's look at verse 7 together. Beloved, Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God's love abides in us and his love is perfected in us. John's big idea, the main point that he's seeking to communicate in this paragraph is quite simply Christians love each other. Christians love each other. It's both a declaration, a statement of fact, and also a command. That if you're here today and you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, that one of the defining characteristics of your life is that you would be a person who loves other Christians. That's right. We have talked and talked and talked and talked and talked about love. It comes up seemingly in every paragraph of First John, it is the blazing reality that we're to seek to live in every single day, that God is love, that we need to look no further, that love is found in him. 
And that once you've experienced that love, you are to seek to live in that love. A few weeks ago, we really hashed through the particulars of God's love. And so today, I'd love to really emphasize what this passage emphasizes, and that's how and why Christians are to be loving people. So I want to try to do that in in three ways. First, we'll talk about the source of love, love's source. Where does it come from? Second, we'll talk about how love actually works. So the means of love, the, the mechanisms, the 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 mannerisms through which love happens, and then finally love's end. What's the goal when God says Christians love each other? What is it that he wants that that to accomplish? Out of all the things that God could tell us, one of the things he says the most often is Christians love each other. Why? What's the goal? So we'll simply try to do those three things this morning. Big idea, Christians love each other, and then love's source, love's means, and love's end. So let's Start at the beginning. The source of love, quite simply, is God himself. God is love. Verse 8 says that anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Love emanates from God because love is part of the very essence of who God is. It's not simply what he does, but it's who he is. There's a word that people for hundreds of years have used to describe God. It's called Trinity, that God is, is three, Father, Son, Spirit, in one. Tri-unity. It's not a word you'll find in the Bible, but it certainly helps us understand what the Bible does teach. Sometimes people think that the Trinity is a topic that's kind of petty and confusing and unnecessary. But this passage, among many, show us that that's not the case. So I hope you brought a floaty because I want to jump in the deep end of the theological pool for a few minutes. Can you do that with me? All right. We won't tarry long there, but just a few comments about why this is so important. If God were not a Trinitarian God, then he would not be intrinsically loving. If God were not a Trinitarian God... so. If God were not Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons in one being, then God would not be intrinsically loving. Let me see if I can defend that or present that to you. This message is unique to Christianity. Out of all the religions of the world, this is the only one that says that. For example, in all of the Quran's descriptions of God, so if you were to pick up the... the, the most holy book in Islam, the Quran. From cover to cover, read it closely, you'll find it never references God as Father. There is no concept in Islam of a personal, warm, affectionate love between Allah and people. It simply does not exist. Why? Well, there are historical answers for that, but there's also theological answers. You see, Muslims don't believe in the Trinitarian God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. They believe in Allah. Allah is one divine person, no Father, Son, Spirit. Allah, then, is not conceived primarily or even secondarily as love. Allah is conceived as a sovereign deity that you simply must submit to and seek his favor through good works. Why? It's because he's not intrinsically loving. 
Why? It's because there's no one for him to have loved. You see, if Allah is all that ever existed, then he could not be intrinsically loving because there was no one else for him to love from the very beginning. Are you with me? I've confused and lost several already. This is not good. Let me see if we can get at it this way. The God of the Bible, three persons but one God, has loved himself forever. So no one made God. God has always been. And God has always not just expressed love, but been love. Because for all eternity, the Father has loved the Son, and the Son has loved the Father. The Son has loved the Spirit, and the Spirit has loved the Father. And the Father has loved the Son and the Spirit. We could go round and round and round and round. God intrinsically loves for His own glory. Let me show you this from the Scriptures. John three thirty-five. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. John fourteen thirty-one. I do, this is Jesus talking, I do as the Father has commanded, so that the world may know that I love the Father. God, in His very nature, has always been others-oriented because He is love. The Scriptures, if you read them closely, you'll find, do not say that God has love. They say God is love. And why is that? It's because God is inherently love. He has always loved Himself. The Father, for all of eternity, has pointed to the Son. And as the Son does things... He says, wow, look at that. That's amazing. The Father's always expressed love towards the Son. The Son has always pointed to the Father and said, wow, what immense wisdom. Why? Because God's love. The Father's always pointed to the Spirit and said, carry out my words. Live this out. And then as He does that, He says, wow, that's amazing. Now certainly this is the very deepest place we could possibly go in the scriptures. But it's also the immense reality that we need in order to live in the real world every day. Why is it ultimately that you can be convinced that God loves you? It's not by looking at your life. It's not by asking, do I have more money now than I did last year? Is my health better today than it was five years ago? Is my education more advanced than it was? Do I have a husband or a wife when I didn't? It's not by looking at the external stuff, but at the very function of how the world works. It works this way because God is love. God loves you because God has been love forever. The same love that God shares among the Father, Son, and Spirit is the same love that He's poured out on you, even while you are running away from Him. Isn't that incredible? If the source of love is God, then if we would become loving people, our thinking must always be God first, people second. God first, people second. If that order is ever switched around, then... We're really not loving people. We're manipulating them. 
God's love is a love for those who did not love him and would never have loved him if he didn't seek us out. Now, we read this a few weeks ago, but it's just so good. We have to look at it again. It'll be on the screen. This comes from Romans 5. For while we were still weak, not physically weak, but morally weak, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for all the people who behave well. Christ died for those who go to church often. Christ died for those of you who put money in the offering plate. Christ died for those of you who never had sex with someone you shouldn't have. No, Christ died for the ungodly. For no one, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we now have been justified, that means to be declared right with. Since we've been declared right with God by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we're reconciled, we will be saved by his life. But more than that, we also rejoice in God through, who, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've received reconciliation. That's love. God loves us that way because that's who God is. Why did he love? Because he's love. That's a tremendous mystery. Love isn't merely being accepted. It's not just fitting in. It's God embracing you and making you a part of the very family of God. So let's set aside our petty, selfish definitions of love. Normally, when we use the word love, we just mean, I have a personal preference for. But love is so much more than that, is it not? Love is God's self-sacrifice for our good and for our joy. And that, in turn, brings Him honor. God has love for us as sinners, and it's a boundless love. One of the Bibles we read to our kids is called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And the phrase it uses at the end of every single chapter is that there's a love that's a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Isn't that beautiful? That's the love that God has for himself and therefore for us. Now, if you really get caught up in God's love for you, your entire life is going to change. Your entire life is going to change. There will be no part of life that remains untouched by God's love. You'll be deeply invested in and changed by God such that you may fight it and resist it, but God is going to change you. He's going to change you because He loves you. All your idols are going to get smashed. All the poison of selfishness you drink in is going to get poured down the drain. All your disappointment in people will become opportunities to forgive because you'll realize that you too fail others. You'll be free to face the hardships of life and emerge spiritually stronger. You'll have opportunities every day to drink deeply of God's endless love because God is love. Brothers and sisters, if you're a true follower of Jesus, you are becoming an increasingly loving person. That is the work that God is doing in you. 
because he's seeking to make you more Christ-like. You can either resist that and make the process more painful and difficult, or you can choose with open arms to say, God, you have loved me. Now help me to love you and help me to love others. And that's what he will do. If you would look and say, not so much today, maybe not so much even the last week or month or year, but if you name yourself a Christian and you can honestly look back at years and say, that isn't happening, then John would say to you, you need to reassess. Have you ever actually met Christ? Are you really a Christian? If the story of your life is the increasing nature of your grumpiness, your uptightness, your lack of love, then John would say that's not the way Christians look. Let's look at it again so we'll see that. Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? Love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. God sent His only Son so that we might live through Him. Christians, your destiny is Christ-likeness. God fashioning you into a person that's truly loving, sacrificial, joyful for the good of others. Non-Christians in the room, that is an invitation to you. Won't you respond? God's demonstrated His love for you in the death and resurrection of Christ. He doesn't ask you to perform for Him. He asks you to quit trying to perform for Him. His love is not a love that can be earned. It's simply a love that must be received. So that is where love comes from. Love comes from God. Second, let's consider love's means. How exactly does love work? If love is from God, then what does God do with that love? And how can we become people who are more loving? For all of you in the room that are engineers or your thinking, tinkering kinds of folks, God tells us in this scripture, here's the way my love is dispensed. Here's how it works. Here's the spigot you stand under if you want to have God's love poured out upon you. Verse 10, this is love, not that we've loved God but that He loved us and sent His Son to be that big scary P word for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Jesus propitiating love. I'm sure you've used that word several times today. It's actually a massively important word that would be good for you to have in your vocabulary. God propitiating means that Jesus took the wrath that you and I deserve. It means that the rebellion that we have all displayed against God in a variety of ways, all of us, we, we are equal in our sin. We are equal in the ways in which we've turned good things into ultimate things that we've worshipped. God says Jesus took the discipline, the consequence, the wrath, that we deserve. And in its place, he gave us his righteous life. I hope that never gets old to your ears. That's what propitiating love is. 
That love is given to us, therefore we become Christians. And then that produces love in us. Why? Because when you become a Christian, you're united with Christ. You're placed into Him. And the Spirit comes to take residence in you. And through our union with Jesus, which we're going to talk a lot about next year, we get the continual stream of God's love. It's not as though it's just a concept that you need to assent to. It's a person who comes to live inside of you. It's amazing. God loves us. And then God loves through us. So we can love because God loves us. Now, how do we love each other? Well, we often talk around here about the one another's. Those are those frequent commands in Scripture where we're told as brothers and sisters, here's how we love each other. And most of the time when the Scriptures say love, 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 it's not talking specifically about the love of a Christian towards a non-Christian. It's in there, of course, but it's mainly the command of the Scriptures that we Christians would love each other and that that love would be of such an amazing quality that it would draw non-Christians in. That's the order that God tells us to live by. So what are they? What are the one another's? You've probably read some of them if you've been in the Scriptures. Somebody shout one out. Encourage one another. Forgive one another. Pray for one another. Be kind to one another. Bear with one another. That's five. There's about 70. Serve one another. Exhort one another. Real cute, Jessica. Treat one another, treat others as more important than yourselves. Yeah. Reprove. All right, stop. There's a lot of them. There's a lot. The only way that the community of faith, the local church, can live those commands out is if we're all confident of God's love for us and reminding each other of that love. Now, Let's brainstorm a couple of specific ways that you can love your church. Let me give you six quickly. One of those, and we spoke of this a few weeks ago, is a way you can love your church is to to join Church on Mill, to make a formal commitment to say, this is where God has sent me. Now, why would you do that? You would do that because that's a way you love. You communicate, I'm in, I'm committed. You can count on me. I will be I'll be involved. I will open my life to you and ask you to do the same for me. That's what membership is. If you can't do that here, then please leave. I mean that in all seriousness. If you can't make that commitment here, then go somewhere that you can because that is something God asks from you if you're a Christian. We have no interest in being the biggest show in town. We do have an interest in raising up followers of Christ who will commit to each other. So in all seriousness, if there's some reason you can't do that here, that's okay. What isn't okay is to not do that anywhere if you consider yourself a follower of Christ. 
Number two, consciously choose in regular interactions with each other to serve and love. Consciously decide, I'm going to approach this person to serve them, to communicate to them. I want to love you the way Christ loves me. There are thousands upon thousands of ways to do that, right? But it takes initiative. It takes you going out of your way to say, I'm going to serve. Number three, give sacrificially by getting involved in an area of ministry. Choose to roll up your sleeves and do things actively to help the body of Christ. Number four, men, pursue another man or two in the church family and disciple them. Women, do the same. We have increasingly seen this year that coming more common. Not the formal gathering of the church, which is so important, but the informaling, is that a word? When you see that word in the dictionary, you will know it started here. Informaling. The, the informal pursuit of one another. It's simply an email, a text, a phone call. Hey, brother, um, I hear next year we're going to do John 13 to 17 in our gathering, in our sermons. So would you meet with me once a week to simply read a paragraph or two and talk about it? That's all. It's, sister, uh, I got this book. I'd love to read it with somebody. Would you do it with me? It's very simple. But that's part of our commitment to each other as members is we'll gather informally to help each other grow. Number five, speak words of encouragement to each other and to your leaders. For example, uh, gospel community leaders do a fantastic job of ministering to the life of the church and helping us reach out. Did you know that most gospel community leaders will never hear a positive thing about their leadership from the people in their groups? Now, they haven't said that to me. It's just something I've observed over the years. We tend to speak up when? When we're unhappy. And there's a time and place for that. But much more common ought to be, thank you for opening your home. Thank you for opening the scriptures. Thank you for praying for me. Thank you for this meal. Thank you for listening to me when I tell you the same problem I have over and over and over and over. Thank you. Finally, become increasingly committed to see your church not as the thing you go to for an hour and a half on Sunday morning, but as the very hub of your life. See, church is the gathering of believers, but that gathering is designed by God to encourage, to fill the tank up with gas, to shoot some cortisone where you're swollen and the joints aren't moving very well, to encourage you for the rest of the week to be living with Christ as the very focus of your life. That's what church is designed to do. Those are some specific ways that you can seek to love your church. Those are the means of love. Those of you with kids in the room, have you ever had one of your children look up at the moon and say something in amazement like, Wow, Mom, look at that light. Have you ever had that happen? Something like that. Well, we as parents know that we should say, actually, 
Cindy or Micah or Abby, that's borrowed light. The moon is simply the reflection, the display of the sun. Christians, that's what we are as the church. We don't have light in and of ourselves, but we can display light. We can display the sun. When we're faithful to love each other, we're putting God on display. We love because he first loved us. Finally, for today, let's consider love's end. Some of you might be thinking, first of all, I've heard this message for years and years and years. It sounds nice, but I've never actually seen it. Nobody really loves me. That love doesn't really exist. There's no such thing as supernatural, sacrificial love. Maybe others might say, I don't really care all that much. Stay out of my business. I'm just fine going and hearing and going home. It's just mushy sentimentalism anyway. My dear friends, love is more than goosebumps and butterflies. It does exist. And we all desperately need it. Every time we sin, we're simply looking for love in something that's destructive. That's all that sin is. Look at verse 11 closely. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Those of you, but those of you in the room who are Christians, have you ever had a non-believing family or friend say, I hear what you're saying, but I don't see any convincing evidence. I hear your words and it's fine if you want to think there is a God and he's good, but I just don't see it. I'm unconvinced. Who's heard something like that? Yeah, I would imagine most all of us. And if you haven't, then it's probably because you haven't shared the gospel. That is the common message we will receive. Perhaps you're here today and you're an atheist and you're seeking to learn more about Christianity. We're thrilled that you're here. Maybe you would question why Christians would believe in a God they've never seen. Isn't the whole idea a little strange? Is it not? When a little kid has an imaginary friend they talk to, we call that what? No, not crazy. We call it cute. We call it, it's just an imaginary friend, they'll go out of it. When an adult talks to a person they can't see, what do we call that? Yes. And that may or may not be true for that person. We also call that prayer. You're talking to someone you can't see. Okay. Verse 11, 12. Let's do 12. No one has ever seen God. But look how it ends. If we love each other, God abides in us and his love is perfected. What's he saying? This is beautiful. Hang with me for just a minute. Not a single person in this room has ever seen God. 
You can't see the Father because He's a spirit. You can't see a spirit. God the Father is a spirit. He's not just one step above us, like He's just superhuman. He's categorically different, better, superior. Sorry to burst a few of your bubbles. God is God is other. He's different. He's invisible. Now, let's be honest. That makes it tricky to understand how to figure out that he's actually real. When someone says, that's weird stuff you think is true, I actually am not offended. I say, you're right. It is weird. It is a little strange. But it's true. God is spirit. He's invisible. But that doesn't mean he's not seen. What John actually tells us is God is put on display when a brother and a sister in Christ gather together. And when lots of them gather together in his name, God is seen. Our corporate expressions of sacrificial love reveal the presence of the unseen God. So how do you see God? You see him in the way Christians treat each other. That's how you see God. So God can't be seen, but God can be seen. Let me give you one recent example of this. Here's a photo. And another photo. And one more photo. Uh, the Wednesday before last, Jill and I were in the kitchen and we heard a bomb go off. I opened the garage door to see what was the issue and I found my parked car was now parked in the house. So a driver was driving down our street, hit my vehicle that was in the driveway, it hit the house and the house fell on the other car. Not normal. So from a week ago Wednesday until last Tuesday, that car held up our house until they could figure out how to jack up the house and hold it so the cars could be removed. I have never met so many neighbors in any place I've ever lived. It's been fantastic. If you're looking for a good evangelism tool, I recommend... Knocking down your house. So here's what happened. Tad came over the next morning to simply express support and care. He did take pictures and laugh, but he also (laughs) offered to help. He loved because God first loved him. Jenny Samsel showed up the next morning, a member of our gospel community, offering us her car. She offered tangible expression of help. Why? Because God first loved her. Randy, Pam, Dave, Jessica, their kids, Jared, all just showed up, just popped in, offering to help. Julie emailed offering a car. Terry Dockham called and said he's praying for us. Matt sent me a list of recommendations of contractors. Scott and Lisa emailed offering to do anything we needed to help. I could go on and on and on and on and on. 
at the end of the day, that's just stuff. It's just metal and wood. But a drunk driver has helped me to see God. Why? Because it's given an occasion for my brothers and sisters to say, we love you. What can we do? The unseen God has been seen at 1540 East Candlestick Drive again and again and again and again and again. That's what John is talking about. Last week might not have gone as planned at our house. The housing addition wasn't really in our budget. I have spent literally days on the phone. But in all of it, it's worth it because we have seen God. God has revealed his love to us through your presence. We've seen God because fellow Christians who have experienced the love of God now are expressing it to us. And their care doesn't end in itself. It rounds up into praise and reminders of God's love for us. We've seen God because God's love has been demonstrated through God's people. Friends, that's the goal of the love of God. It's that as we experience love from each other, we would be reminded of God's love for us. Love between us as Christians displays how good God is. It beckons others to check out this strange, crazy message that there is a God who's unseen, yet who can be seen. It demonstrates the kind of character God has and the wonderful reality of his presence in us. So church, when the average person in Tempe who, who sees our buildings, who knows about Church on Mill, when they think about Church on Mill, does she say, the way those people love each other can only be explained by the God they believe in? That's the only way it makes sense. Is that what they say? Does the way you live your life as a member Is that what they would say about your life? Friends, when you come to know God, you are drawn into the very love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Spirit. You're beckoned and drawn into Trinitarian love. Perfect love. Love that for all eternity has deferred attention from the Father over to the Son, from the Son over to the Spirit. That's the love that God invites us to share. We've become partakers of divine love because Jesus died for us. If you're not yet a Christian, won't you come to that love? That's true love. Love that knows your faults, your failures, your hidden thoughts, even better than you do. Love that extends itself anyway. Embraces you, invites you to turn from your sin and turn to God. You can respond simply by confessing that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And you'll be saved. And then you'll be invited and welcomed through baptism into the church family. If you're here today and you're a Christian already, would you commit yourself afresh and anew 
to loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. There are lots of reasons not to. But there's even more too. Let me end with these words. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and rose again. Christian, you no longer have a life to consider your own. God's very life is in you. And you will experience the very best life if you will not resist his urges, his promptings, his leadings, his whispers. But you'll say yes every time. And those promptings are going to lead you to love people because that's who God is. Now we've got two or three minutes before we need to go. So I would ask you, what questions does this raise in your mind? Is there any question you would have based on what we've said today that you would be so bold as to raise your hand and ask? Yes, ma'am. What if you're a Christian, you're confident of your relationship with God, but you don't feel loving, you feel uh, angry? Well, can we do that one in two minutes? What do you think? <laughs> um, Let me make a a couple of brief comments. First, there would probably be quite a few of us that would say we've had that kind of experience. We would say, I know the scriptures tell me to be loving, uh, but I don't feel loving. I feel something else. And that something else might be depressed, might be anxious, might be worried, might be scared, might be angry. There's lots of emotions that we feel that we would say are, are in opposition to the expression of love. Are you with me? So what do you do when that happens? What, what's going on there? Um, I would encourage you to pay attention to those feelings. Don't simply sweep them under the rug and pretend they're not there. Don't stuff them. Those of you who stuff them, what happens eventually? You erupt, and that's a mess. You don't want to do that. So pay attention to them. Feelings are not what you want to drive your life. They're more like the check engine light on your car. They, when, it, when they come on, they're telling you something is wrong underneath the surface. Something's going on at the heart level. Pay attention to that. God loves you, and he cares about your feelings. So feelings matter, but they're not primary. They're the caboose and 
your beliefs in the truth are your locomotive. So I want to pay attention to my feelings. I want to seek to understand them, but I don't want them to drive my life. So when, when I personally have feelings that I know are contrary to what God would have for me, I will try to ask myself, where are these coming from? Why are they there? When did they start? Most of the time, I'm tired, hungry, or lonely. And the feeling of exhaustion is driving those other emotions more than those emotions themselves. And then I want to sit down with somebody who I trust, won't placate me, but loves me and is committed to me, who can help me understand what's going on in your life by asking good questions. Because invariably, unless there's something physical going on, and there certainly can be, unless there's some physical causation for those feelings, they're coming because I'm believing something that isn't true. Or there's something that's happened to me or in me or that I've done that's unresolved. And so I want to find some, another believer who can help me sort through those things in order that they could be resolved and I could walk in increased freedom in Christ and become more loving. If that doesn't work, and I better end with this, if those processes over time don't yield change, then I need to reconsider, have I ever really come to know Christ? Because Christ promises change in us. And that is unequivocally true for everyone who comes to know Christ. It doesn't mean a mature Christian never has negative emotions. It does mean that over time, as I look at the stuff that's difficult and bring it to Christ, I find I am increasingly being changed by Jesus. Hope that helps at least as a start. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your immense love for us, a love that's demonstrated in action, a love that's shown in what Christ did on the cross, a love that's shown in your pursuit of us while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, we are often people who, even when we know you, resist the expression of love towards other Christians. Please forgive us of that. I pray that each of us here in the room who genuinely have come to know you and in particular have made commitments here as brothers and sisters, I pray today that we would reaffirm our love for one another by tangibly pursuing someone and expressing love and care and commitment to them. I pray we would tangibly demonstrate it by coming tonight to the members' meeting. I pray that we would demonstrate it by allowing others to give to us and to pursue us. And Father, for the person here who has not yet come to know you, who has never experienced your love, May you overwhelm them today. And may they come to know you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.